Quick question, how many of you have ever read the book, The Scarlet Letter? You remember reading that in high school? It's pretty standard uh, for high school reading. In The Scarlet Letter, Hester Prynne, the main character, finds herself pushed to the very margins of society, rejected, judged, shunned. She was a known adulteress, made evident to all by the big scarlet letter A, stitched to her clothing, a sign of endless condemnation. The book says she would become the general symbol at which the preacher and the moralist might point and in which they might vivify and embody their images of women's frailty and sinful passion. With the scarlet letter A on her chest, all look at her who had once been innocent as the figure, the body, the reality of sin. You know, the irony of the scarlet letter is that it never justifies Hester Prynne's sin. In fact, the book presents Prynne in a complex light of both guilt and quiet repentance. By the end of the book, you feel for her. You are broken for her. You pity her. Instead, the book is a powerful indictment of the hidden sin of all who condemned Prynne. In a powerful statement, the book, the book turns the focus away from Prynne's visible shame to the invisible guilt of everyone around her. The author writes, the outward guise of purity was but a lie. And that if truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on a mini bosom besides Hester Prynne. Ouch. As we come to Romans 2, the Apostle Paul sounds out a similar message, telling his readers to be careful in pointing out the scarlet letters of others, because in doing so, they, remind, they remain blind to the blazing scarlet letter on their own chest. Those who would condemn sinners themselves stand condemned. In this section... Paul reveals that all bear a scarlet letter in the eyes of God. The only thing to do then is to repent. Moving into Romans chapter 2, Paul pulls a nasty little trick on his readers. It is incredibly nasty. We're going to see how nasty it is here in just a moment. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul lays out a scathing indictment against an unrighteous men. And up to this point, he targets an ambiguous they. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts became darkened. They became fools. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity." They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. It's almost as if Paul is intentionally drawing his readers in with a diatribe against other sinners. Someone else, of course, not us. Someone else. If he is writing to primarily Jews in this section, then his allegations against the pagans would almost certainly have received a wholehearted approval. Amen. Those homosexuals deserve judgment. Those pagans, those idol worshipers, let them be damned. 
He speaks of the unrighteousness of these other men's idolatry and their unnatural affections. They have no excuse. They deserve to be judged. They are unrighteous. And like King David hearing the story of a rich man who stole a poor man's sheep to slaughter it, we're invited in to join in the indictment. Yes, such unrighteous people deserve judgment. And it's at that very moment that Paul springs his trap like prophet Nathan. Behold, you are the man. How does he do this? In Romans chapter 2, 1, Paul makes a sudden shift from the third person plural, they, to the second person singular, you. Romans 1, 18 through 32, they, 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 they. Romans 2, 1, therefore you, second person singular, have no excuse, O man. That's a nasty trick, Paul. I thought we were talking about the unrighteousness of other people. I thought we were talking about how everybody else deserves judgment. I thought we were talking about them, not me. And it's at that moment, as you are looking at the scarlet letters that he's pointing out, he takes us in Romans 1, 18 through 32 and says, look at their scarlet letters. And he waits for you to say, yes, look at how gross everybody else is. And it's at that moment he goes, Do you see the scarlet letter on your own chest there? It's at that moment he changes our eyes away from the scarlet letters of all the Hester Prins around us to see the scarlet letter blazing on our own chest. The scarlet letter that we happen to overlook. A sudden turn of events. It is not they who deserve wrath and judgment. It's me It's you. You see, we religious people, we like the they language. But Paul draws us in and says, whoa, 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 if all things are fair and equal, it's us. It's me. It's you who deserve the wrath of God. He points out the hypocrisy of our judgment. He writes, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself Because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. His logic's fairly straightforward. If we acknowledge that something's a sin, then it's a sin no matter who does it, right? Because sin is sin. But the sad tendency of humanity is that we see the sins of others with clarity, but we remain blind to our own sins. I want everyone at this moment to stop looking sideways. Look at yourself. Don't say, yes, they do. They look at me that way. They're blind to themselves, but judge me. No, no, no. We're talking about you. You're in the spotlight. We tend, I tend, to see the sins of others with absolute 20-20 clarity. And I remain blind to my own sins. Not only that, I also tend to see my own sin as being nuanced or justified. Therefore, I'm the exception to the rule, not the standard. Miss Grundy talks about other people, so she's a gossip. But when I talk about other people, I'm just being honest about my concerns. Ted is always complaining that his coworkers make more money than he does. He's clearly envious. But when I feel cheated out of something I deserve, it's not envy. It's a matter of justice and fairness. 
Sheila is known for stirring up conflict. She's such a divisive person. Ask anyone. But rolling my eyes behind her back surely wouldn't qualify as strife. You see, in our blindness, we condemn others for their sins while simultaneously justifying and nuancing our own. And yet in doing so, Paul says, you pass judgment on yourself. He asked a rhetorical question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? If sin is sin, and if God judges sin, and he judges sin rightly, then what sin could possibly go unpunished? In this question that needs no answer, Paul shows that there are no exceptions, no excuses, no nuances when justice falls. Do you understand that? No nuances. God will judge heterosexual pornography because it is immoral, just as he will judge homosexuality for the same reason. He will judge a person's heartless lack of compassion toward the needy, the refugee, the widow, the orphaned. He will judge your heartlessness, your lack of compassion, your ruthlessness and turning a cold shoulder in the same way he will judge a murderer for the same ruthlessness. He will judge gossips, liars, the proud, and the malicious alike. To God, unrighteousness is unrighteousness. And if we acknowledge that God will rightly judge unrighteousness, then we must also acknowledge that we too deserve judgment for our unrighteousness. Can I just say something that's not said in churches very often? We're all wearing scarlet letters, including myself. You're all worthy to be shunned by God. We're all worthy to be pushed off of the margins and pushed out of heaven. We all deserve the fire, the execution block. And at the end of the day, my immorality, my greed, my pride, my gossip, my envy has no nuances to anybody else's. It's worthy of judgment. So at that moment that I say, yes, immoral people deserve judgment. I immediately have to realize that I just spoke judgment on myself because the same thing is true for me. The moral people deserve judgment. Then immoral people deserve judgment. I wear a scarlet letter. When Paul says that God's wrath has been revealed against the unrighteous, it is inappropriate for us to assume that he is describing only God's wrath against another person's unrighteousness. It's inappropriate to do that. Instead, it should lead us to consider our own sins. After rhetorically implying that no one will escape judgment, Paul asks the question, or do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not them, you. 
to repentance. Listen to Paul's elaborate description of God's goodness. He spotlights the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, literally long-suffering here with you. He suffers you and his patience, his tolerance of you and all your downfalls. When you consider the truth that sin, your sin included, is the greatest provocation of God's wrath, nothing more wants God to act in so just and high-handed manner than yours and my sin. When you think about the fact that our sin is the greatest blight in God's eye, The fact that that final judgment hasn't fallen on us, that fire hasn't fallen on us, is incredible. It's incredible. If we're honest about the Bible's view of sin, then we have to admit all sin, our sin included, our lustful thoughts, right? Those moments on the cell phone where our mind takes that strange woman into the motel room, the, the idea of hatred and, and, not lo- and not loving other people in the way that Christ would love them, all those things are despicable in the eyes of God. It provokes him. He's angry at that stuff. That's what wrath means. It means he's mad. It provokes him, causes him to clench his fist. Why then hasn't he struck? Why haven't we fallen? Why didn't you die in your sleep as a just condemnation from God? In his sermon, the sinners in, sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards preached about this patience. You know, we, we listened to that sermon in high school, thinking that it's a display of that, you know, hell and brimstone kind of preaching. But one of the things that Edwards makes clear is that God is not only absolutely just, he's also absolutely, incredibly, unfathomably patient. Here's what he says in this sermon. You have offended God infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did of his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again this morning after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no reason, other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure and perfect eye by your sinful and wicked manner by attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not at this very moment drop into hell. Do we deserve it? Does it provoke him? Yeah. Why then hasn't the hammer fallen? Because God is patient. Because God is kind. Because God is long-suffering. My friends, when you think about the wrath of God against unrighteousness, and you think about the fact that judgment hasn't yet fallen on you or on others, 
That is not meant to cause you to point fingers, but for you to assess why has God given such patience and grace and forbearance to you? The fact that God is so patient, the fact that God is so forbearing means that it gives us an opportunity to repent of the sins that bring him provocation. Now, it's an irony. We all want God's justice to fall. You know, I, here in Texas, I hear people say this all the time. When the LGBTQ flags fly, when, when states turn blue, when abortion rates go up, man, we want God's justice to come. My friend, if you've got a porn addiction, you don't want God's justice to come right now. My friend, if you've got an anger issue with your wife, if you're envying at the moment, it doesn't matter if it's heterosexual porn addiction, doesn't matter if it's heterosexual envy, doesn't matter if it's heterosexual greed. God's justice comes on sin. He's given you time to repent, my friend. We respond to the patience of God by looking at ourselves. The wrath of God is coming. A storm is coming. So what does that do? Does that give you a chance to talk about everybody else's house that's going to fall down? Or to consider where you're standing and if your house is going to fall down? The irony is, is we're all like good Texans and Oklahomans standing on our front porch watching the tornado going, yeah, that trailer's got no stance. That was actually an accurate representation of my hometown. And the dude's saying this as a cow's flying next to his head. <laughs> My friends, we all do that when we approach the wrath of God in this way. We see the wrath of God coming. It's going to level people, including you, without the grace of God. You see, we as God's people think that because we have Jesus, now there's no fear. My friends, sin should cause you to fear God. It should cause you to fear God. We must be looking inward. We must be thinking. The only proper response to God not having let the hammer fall yet is to repent of our own wickedness. Peter says the same thing. He, he addresses the fact it seems like God's being slow. All these people are suffering. Christians are dying. When is God going to act and topple Caesar? When are the Romans going to fall? When is all this persecution going to be gone? When is heaven going to come? You'd expect Peter to say, God will work on his own timing. Trust him. He'll topple them. No, instead he turns it back towards Christians. He says that God is not slow in fulfilling his promise. Instead, he is patient toward you. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Doesn't say he's patient with them. Says he's patient toward you. He's writing to Christians. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Have you ever thought the only reason that Jesus hasn't split the sky and judged your enemies is because if he did so right now, you would be burned? Maybe his patience is for your good. Man, I, I had to write this sermon this week. I just coming to realize that, yeah, my impatience for God's justice 
is like a self-destructive wish sometimes. Want God to have justice on sinners? Well, <laughs> when I think about it, I'm the sinner I'm wanting justice on. My friends, we should be people who repent when we hear the news that God's wrath is coming against unrighteousness. We should repent wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, energetically, every day. When somebody points out sin, we should repent. When we see sin, we should treat it like it's a sickness that could cause us death. That's the nature of sin. Sin brings the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. My friend, there is no small sin, no nuanced sin. Your sin will not survive his holy glare. Repent. As Paul has shown and will show in the subsequent sections, salvation does not depend on a person's biological descent. doesn't matter what pedigree you have. You could trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham himself and you will not be saved. It doesn't depend on a personal moral code. There's lots of moral people. They're not saved from God's judgment because they're not perfect or any other factor. It depends on faith and repentance. In fact, Paul says that it's because of our hard and unrepentant, our impenitent, that's what that word means, heart that stores up God's wrath to come. You want to know the irony? The irony is is that a guilty tax collector who acknowledges sin and turns from it is justified, and a moralistic Pharisee who refuses to repent remains in guilt. A repentant Gentile, like a Roman centurion, will eat at Abraham's table, while the high priest of Israel who doesn't repent is pushed out into utter darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Samaritan woman, and most of us would not have hung out with her. The irony is, is she's satisfied. But the rich man wasn't. You know, there's going to be repentant lesbians that get into the kingdom of heaven. People who were told of their sin and repented of it. People like Rosaria Butterfield. Former lesbian, hears the grace of God, repents. She's going to heaven because of repentance and faith. While those of us that have never had a homosexual thought but never repented are going straight to hell. Because it's not a matter of what you've done or how bad you did it or how much you did it. It's a matter of are you unrighteous or not and have you repented and believed in Jesus? Let's just, let's just infuse our moralistic tendencies that have, we've been raised with and that have come back out in the last couple of years with a gospel truth of the reality that sin is sin. It doesn't matter what you were taught to believe. It matters what God says. And we're about to really see what God's standards of judgment, judgment is. And it's way too high for any of us to meet. His emphasis on repentance beckons you to consider the repentance of your own life. Do we sit back in judgment assuming that God's wrath is coming for those other people? Those liberals, right? 
those homosexuals, those murderers. Yeah, and you. Because the scarlet letter that you are seeing so clearly on others is etched right on your chest. And it doesn't go away. Not on its own. Don't presume upon the kindness of God. Now, our presumption of God's kindness might be due to a misunderstanding of his judgment. Not only do we tend to see other people's sins more clearly, but we also, more clearly than we see our own, we also tend to apply a different standard of judgment on others than we do ourselves. When it comes to the sins of others, God's judgment is unmitigated, unwavering, absolute. But he will approach our failures with more understanding and leniency. We're the good old boys. Right? We got it. We got it in with God. Surely he'll see how different, how much better I am than that other person. Mine are good-hearted mistakes. Just a few flaws. Theirs is rebellion. Paul sets the record straight by explaining the justice of God. Verses 6 through 11, Breck, if you can toss up that uh, chiasm. Verses 6 through 11 form this chiasm here, and it really centers in on that letter C. You can see how the chiasm works. Letter A, he will render it to each one according to his works. And then that's followed by that sandwich. So these, these truths mirror each other. God is not partial, right? Render to each one, he's not partial. And then you get B, to those who by patience, in other words, all the good people, this is what they get. You see that again in the next letter B. But then right in the center, and typically in a chiasm, the center is the message. The center is the point. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. The chiasm shows us for three things. Number one, God's justice is personal and non-partial. Personal and non-partial. Second, it shows us that those who do good will receive eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. And number three, those who are unrighteous will receive wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. These three things remain true regardless of a person's background. You can be Jew, you can be Greek, you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be black, you can be white, doesn't matter. These things remain true regardless of who you are. All must stand before the objective, impartial eyes of a just and holy God. So let's just take for a moment and walk through each one of these truths. First, God's justice is personal and impartial. God renders to each one. Do you see that in the text there? God renders to each one according to their deeds. And he does so without showing favoritism. If you think you're going to stand before the eyes of God as a family, and good old grandpa who was really in with God, just, yes, I'm going to be counted with him. No, each one. Not each group. Not sets of friends. Not couples. Each one. There's a system of justice where Lot is saved and Lot's wife is not. Each one. 
Every individual must stand before God. No one has an advantage on their own. If anyone thinks that they have anything in this life to tip the scales of God's justice, they're terribly mistaken. Now, how will people be judged? Now, Paul gives a surprising answer in this. Saying that God will render to each one according to his works. I totally did not see that coming. Not in Romans. I knew it came from Psalm 62, 12, but that was Old Testament. So surely New Testament has a different standard of judgment, right? Because in the Old Testament, you hear God will judge each one according to their works. God will render to each one according to what he does. That's Psalm 62, 12. I would think that Romans being a gospel book would tell me something different. Well, he doesn't change it. We'd half expect this gospel preacher to tell us that works do not matter. But Paul clearly says they do. So then what do we do with the surprising statement? I think it's important for us to understand the caveat here. It's important to understand that when Paul said that Paul saying that we will be judged by our works is not the same as him saying that we will be saved by our works. Not the same. We'll be judged by our works is not the same as saying we will be saved by our works. We must be saved by something other than our works because how are we going to be judged? By our works. The idea that people will be judged for what they do is firmly established in the Old Testament and you can even hear it from the mouth of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, when he says that the son of man is going to return. And when he comes, he will repay each person according to what he's done. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. What we do matters. Why? Well, as Paul's going to show us in Romans, what we do reveals who we trust in. The fruit reveals the root and the soil, and all the nutrients. Paul will get to this point later in Romans 6 when he explains why those who trust in Christ must consider themselves dead to sin. Why is it not okay to just believe in Jesus, receive forgiveness, and then continue in sin? Paul says, because your freedom from sin reveals that you have the Savior. But we'll get to that. We're getting ahead of ourselves. The fact of the matter is God will render to each one according to his works. Now there's two things that you could receive from God. If you're a good person, you will receive eternal life. Is that shocking to hear that the Bible says that if you're a good person, you'll receive eternal life. Sure. We want to play the good old boy standard. Great. Good people get good things. Let's play it. We have it right here in the Bible. It's a high standard. And here's a couple of questions. Who's good? How good is good enough? I don't know anybody that would say I'm perfect. So let's just define good for a minute. Okay, great. Good people get good things. You get what you want. Now who's good? Clear answer? No one. He has implicated every person under the wrath of God. If we all have sin, then how good do you have to be to receive eternal life? Perfect. Do you realize that? 
absolutely spotless. Not one stray thought, not one angry outburst, not one addiction, not one even momentary lapse to be considered good. What about the other side? Well, those who are unrighteous get all the opposite of good. Wrath. And then he adds fury. Can you imagine a furious God? Can you imagine the high king of heaven being fury to you? Well, all the people who fall short of good, that's what evil is, is anything that falls short of good. If it falls short of good, then it's evil. And if it's evil, it's unrighteous. If it's unrighteous, it deserves God's wrath and fury. So then, if we don't know who's good, then who is unrighteous? I think you and I both know it's you. And it's me. You see, it's important to remember that Paul's building a case for the gospel. In his explanation of God's justice, he presents a problem. If eternal life is for good people, then who is good? If judgment comes on those who are self-seeking, which has been all of us at some point, and unrighteous, then who can expect to receive the judgment of God? Paul shows the high standards of God's judgment, knowing that no one is good enough to measure up to the standard. When people say, well, God, you know, I'm a fairly good person. Well, scripture says that good people are saved. Are you sure you've been good enough? You see, Paul's building up to this point in Romans 3. He he lays it out. He says, okay, great. We want a standard where good people are saved. Okay, let's do it. Okay, you got your standard. Good people are saved. Good people get eternal life. Now then who's good? Are you good? And then he gets to Romans 3 and he says, hey, let me just, I see you squirming in your seat. So let me just clarify it for you. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Our standard of good old boys go to heaven just fell through. Everybody's going to hell. What do we do then? God's going to judge us based on our works. God's going to judge us based on what we do. Well, I guess we need something else then, don't we? We need something foreign to us. Something outside of us. Something alien to us, in a sense. And walks Jesus. If I'm going to be judged based on what I did, I need to be saved based on what he did. If I'm going to be judged based on what God sees that I have done, I need God to turn his eyes and look at what he has done. What I have done is damnable, broken. You look at me, I'm nothing but the spider to be thrown away. I'm the, I'm the creep, I'm the broken criminal. I'm the scarlet letter. But he doesn't have a scarlet letter, so look at his robe. The irony is, is that it's only as Christ walks in and puts his robe of righteousness around us that has no scarlet letter, that God no longer sees the letter on us. 
Do you realize how humbling the gospel is? My friends, we Christians tend toward pride. Before we became Christians, we could feel the scarlet letter kind of embedded there and heavy. We became Christians, and right after that, we kind of, yeah, yeah, this grace is good. And over time, we begin to forget. We forget that there was ever a scarlet letter to begin with. Why we needed a new robe. We start to act as if that robe's always been there. Let me just remind you, it hasn't been. You wear Jesus's clothing. It's not yours. Yours are stained. Yours are dirty. They're filthy rags. You need somebody else's robe because yours has a big, nasty letter A. Check yourself, Christian, before you judge other people's sins. Before we start maligning our indictment against the gays and the liberals and the abortionists and the the greedy politicians and the businessmen. Remember, you're in that lot. How are you not in that lot? Not because you vote different than they do. Not because you go to church and they don't. Because by faith and through grace, you have received new clothing. That's it. Every Christian must understand we deserve judgment. So what do we do then with all this in Romans 2? I'm not saying that we stop talking about the sins of others. We got to call sin what sin is in love and in truth. We've got to, homosexuality is a sin. We've got to say it. It's in scripture. Being a greedy politician is a sin. It's, it's in scripture. But so is my heterosexual lustful moments. So is that moment yesterday where I lost my temper with my kid. So is that moment when God sees into my heart and I don't love him the way I should. All that's sin too, isn't it? As Paul clearly says in Romans 1, 18 through 32, there's no denying that everyone around you bears a scarlet letter. You're right in seeing it. They do. But Romans 2 uncovers your scarlet letter. When we talk about the sin and judgment of God, we should do so knowing that we too on our own deserve everything that we say is coming to everyone else. So then, what do you do with this? If you are someone who rightly understands the righteousness of God and the grace of his forgiveness, mature Christians begin to see themselves as this. There is no bigger sinner in the room who so deserves God's wrath and is so undeserving as God's love than me. You see, Paul at one point saw everybody else's scarlet letter, didn't see his own. He hit the grace of God like a brick wall. And it knocks some sense into him. So we get a Paul who's ready to kill people for a self-righteous standard and ready to slay all the scarlet letters to a Paul who goes, I'm the chief of sinners. How do you know that someone has truly encountered the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ? When they realize that they're the sinner in the room who's received grace and deserves judgment.
Lord willing, if you know the gospel, and if I were to say, who deserves judgment? Your hand would be the first one up. It's not they, it's you. You have no excuse. But by the grace of God, he has sent us his son who died for us on the cross, was buried and rose again so that he could put a new robe on us that has no scarlet letter. He burned the old clothes that we had on. Those things that marked us for eternal damnation, those things that kept us in condemnation, We're the Hester Prince that stand in our guilt and our conviction. And yet he as a good husband comes and gives us clean clothes. My friends, my prayer for you today is that your hard hearts against other people and against these other sinners will be broken to to realize that that same hardness you experience towards them, God once had towards you. And it was only because of his grace and patience that you've been rescued. Check yourself. Check your heart. Be humble, gospel-centered, grace-filled, undeserving, unpresuming Christians. That's how to be a gospel-centered church. Let's pray. Father God, as we baptize people today, God, as uh, there are people that um, come forward to uh, receive baptism in front of our church, God, we um, acknowledge, God, that this is done only because Jesus has given us new clothes, not because we bought them for ourselves, not because we've earned them, not because they're ours by right, but they're ours by faith and grace. Thank you, God, for your kind patience on us. Help us to be repentant, humble Christians. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.